In 2015, three million gallons of polluted mine water burst from the abandoned Gold King Mine near Silverton, Colorado, and turned streams and rivers bright orange as the flow traveled all the way to Lake Powell, nearly 400 miles away. That catastrophic event made the news, and the mine was designated a Superfund site by the EPA. But in fact, hundreds of Colorado's hard rock gold and silver mines, abandoned decades ago, have left a toxic legacy. Contaminated groundwater moving through the San Juan Mountains leaches into waterways that support the region's wildlife and provide drinking water for many Western communities. No one understands the threat posed by these abandoned mines and the challenge to manage that threat better than Rory Cowie. As president and owner of Alpine Water Resources, a mountain region hydrology and water management consultancy, Rory and Mountain Studies Institute field manager Nate Rock often spend their days in high-altitude environments working to monitor the water quality and quantity in and around these legacy mine sites. Conditions can be extreme. Frigid weather, snowpack 15 to 30 feet deep, avalanche danger, non-existent cell service. But the work to understand the mine water and its potential effects on the environment is essential. And Rory and his team are not only eminently qualified for the job, they love it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Aquapod, where guests share water monitoring stories from the field. I'm Helen Taylor, content manager at In-Situ, and with me here is Adam Hobson, In-Situ's application development manager for groundwater. Hey, Adam, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Helen. Thanks very much. Good, good. It's great to have you here. And so here we are, social distancing at the lovely Versa studio near Longmont, Colorado. And we're really excited to have with us Rory Cowie of Alpine Water Resources, who's joining us remotely from Silverton, Colorado. So, Rory, welcome. Thank you. Hey, Rory, thanks for uh, joining us today. Uh, when we were brainstorming guests for the show, your name came up because, you know, we've been working with you on some installations down in Silverton, and we know that you're working on monitoring projects with big, big implications, many of which are located in some pretty extreme locations. Uh, you want to kick things off by telling us a little bit about what your company is now and what kind of work that you're doing? Um, sure. Well, thanks. Thank you again for inviting me. Um, to this podcast. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to participate. Uh, I've been enjoying working with your company and products for, I would say, close to 10 years now. And um, my my company is called Alpine Water Resources. I'm a sole source LLC corporation. Um, and I do hydrology and water management solution work. And I offered hydrologic design, build, monitoring, and maintenance services uh, in mountain regions, um, mostly here in Colorado. Awesome. That's really great. But sounds like, but you've also been very much focused uh, in uh, kind of Southwest Colorado in Silverton, which is just north of Durango to kind of orient people there. And you've been doing some really interesting stuff in some pretty crazy environments there. Um, so having been out there myself, but kind of uh, interesting things. Uh, t- what are some of the biggest challenges you're finding with uh, some of the monitoring, the water monitoring out there? Uh, well, so yeah, the, the, one of the reasons I'm located in Silverton is uh, Silverton was a uh, originally a mining town from the 1880s. And there are hundreds of abandoned um, hard rock, gold, and silver mines located in the Silverton area um, in the San Juan Mountains, the volcanic mountains of the San Juans. And uh, a lot of my work involves uh, going and trying to monitor a lot of these old uh, abandoned mine sites. And many of these sites have had nobody at them for 
50, 80, even 100 years. And so we are going in uh, and trying to at least establish some understanding of what's going on. So we work a lot with uh, mine waters that are draining out of abandoned mines in high elevations. So most of my work is between 10,000 and 12,000 feet. Uh, pretty high up in the mountains in the subalpine and alpine regions. So I'm working at abandoned mine sites and also um, the associated streams and rivers that um, flow around these uh, mine sites. So imagine, you know, at altitudes like that, you know, mostly snowmelt dominated runoff that you're dealing with and influences from that. Uh, but the mining stuff is, uh, you know, is, is very interesting. Tell me a little more about the you know, I said with the kind of historic mining district there, um, I, I think I said because there really, I don't believe there are very many active mines in the area now, um, but there's, I believe there's some, uh, how many miles of tunnel are there in, the, in those mountains that are there? Um, well, <laughs> we don't know exactly, but uh, there's estimates, it, it's many hundreds of miles um, in the area. So um, Silverton, uh, the nearby towns are Telluride and Uray, both of which were historic mining towns. Mm -hmm. And all three towns, as the crow flies, are, you know, 10 or 15 miles apart. But there's hundreds and hundreds of miles of tunnels underground. And the tunnels actually connect from one town to another, um, where you would today, in present day, you would have to drive 60 or 70 miles uh, around the mountains to get to a town like Telluride, which is only 10 miles away. So pretty extensive mine workings. In many situations, the different mining companies that were based in the different towns were actually um, targeting the same areas within the mountain to do mining. So they may be building tunnels from opposite directions, um, trying to get to somewhere five miles underground uh, and who can get there first. So there's a lot of interconnected workings. The other thing is that uh, there were hundreds of mining companies, some successful, some not successful um, over the years. And so there is uh, literally hundreds of different uh, mine tunnels and mine portals that are spread out throughout the landscape uh, in any given watershed. And so sometimes if they were profitable mines, they would continue to build tunnels and connect from one mine to another. And in other times, the mines would just stop and not be connected. So we are trying to understand this, this interconnectedness of the mines because the mines are now conveying groundwater through the mountain and out into the streams. And that's um, why we're monitoring the mines from a hydrology standpoint. Uh, that's, that's great stuff. Now, there is one uh, very notable mine drainage that you, I believe you've worked on, the Gold King Mine. Explain your work on that and kind of the monitoring that's happening there. Uh, I think that's a pretty fascinating yeah. story there. Yeah, so um, that's a great continuation of what I was saying. You know, most of these mine sites have been abandoned for at least 50 years, if not longer. And what happens when mines are abandoned is that the portals or the entrances to the mines tend to collapse over time. So the hill slopes um, break down and will basically collapse and cover over the portals of the mines. So I would say at least 90, 95% of the historic mines, the actual entrance is no longer um, open and accessible. Most of them have collapsed piles of rock and rubble over them. Mm 
So in the case of the Gold King mine, this was a mine that uh, has not been active for, for many decades. And the entrance to it, one of the entrances, uh, was completely collapsed. And uh, in recent decades, there was water that had started to drain out of the mines. And so one of the big risks and challenges is there's concern that the collapsed mine tunnels can store and build up water behind them and eventually have a blowout or a release um, because the earthen dam at the entrance to the mine is not a permanent structure. So in the case of the Gold King, there was a collapsed mine portal and water had been backing up behind the um, collapse for many years. And um, eventually it started to come out and in 2015, there was um, an accidental release of um, several million gallons of the, the mine water um, all came out of the mine tunnel at the same time. And this water was bright, bright orange because uh, it contained a lot of iron oxides. There's a lot of iron uh, in the rock in the area. And when you add 3 million gallons of orange water to a headwater stream, it tends to um, create a lot of uh, visual impairment. So this um, s this release of water from the Gold King ended up moving an orange slug of water um, hundreds of miles downstream. It made it all the way to Lake Powell. And so this um, was uh, got a lot of attention in the news. Uh, and, you know, about the next day after the spill, the, the orange water had moved downstream about 60 miles and was passing through the city of Durango. Since that time, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has taken the Gold King under their wing um, as a cleanup site, a priority site on the national priorities list for um, a polluted site. And so the Gold King is one of 48 mines in the area of Silverton that were put under a listing and given priority needing federal cleanup to improve, reduce the risk of these type of blowouts and also to try and improve the water quality. Um, all of the Gold King Mine and other mines in the area flow into the Animus River. The Animus River um, is part of the Colorado River watershed. As I mentioned, it flows into the San Juan and, and eventually through Lake Powell and into the Colorado River system. So um, it's a very important uh, water source. These mines are all at the source or the headwaters of, um, you know, pretty major rivers leaving the Southwest. So, yeah, so Roy, what's the goal of your monitoring? The goal of our monitoring and what we're monitoring for is we are basically trying to understand the sources and locations of contamination and pollutants to the rivers um, in the Silverton San Juan area to the Animus River. So we are monitoring the quality and the quantity of water that is arriving at the rivers through different sources. So some of these are actually draining mine adits, so we call this mine water. Um, we also monitor seeps and springs and melting snowpacks and alpine lakes and all of the areas where water is sourced that eventually flows to the rivers. The objective is to understand how much water comes from different places and whether or not it needs to be addressed and cleaned up 
um, to help improve downstream water quality. In order to understand the overall hydrology, we are conducting a number of water balance studies. Water balance is how much water comes into a watershed through snow and rain, how much leaves the watershed as stream discharge. So within that, we, as I mentioned, we have a lot of different instrumentation. I have set up over 20 stream gauges in the headwater streams that flow to the Animas River in the last five years following this, the Gold King um, release and the increase in federal funding to address this. Uh, in addition to stream gauges, we monitor the draining mine adits. We also monitor groundwater wells and wells that have been drilled into abandoned mines, uh, as well as monitoring the overall climate um, hydrology. We measure rain and snow, etc. So that's our overall goal. And in order to do this um, successfully, we need high temporal and spatial resolution data. So that is where the instrumentation becomes vital to our studies. Um, we can go to the sites once or twice a year and manually measure something like discharge or pH or conductivity of the water, but we don't know how well that represents a given stream or a mine at it over the course of time. So using instrumentation allows us to have continuous 15-minute or hourly interval monitoring of things like flow and water quality um, from locations like mines and streams. And we are working towards extensive instrumentation networks that can all communicate the data real-time so that the monitoring can be done in a temperature-controlled office environment from anywhere that has internet. We deal with high snowpacks and avalanche danger and extreme climate. So those are reasons why we want instrumentation monitoring and collecting data without having to put people into the field at all times. So, so you mentioned before that, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, measuring pH and conductivity of the water. Are there, what other parameters? I mean, a level sounds like a very important one, obviously, but what other parameters, not only water quality, but maybe other physical parameters um, are you measuring? The discharge and water volume quantity is our primary objective. So we are using, we are measuring water level to convert to discharge in a number of different formats. In some scenarios, we are using um, prefabricated flumes that have stilling wells and pressure transducers measure water level in the stilling wells, which converts to a discharge. We also are measuring stream discharges by recording water stage height in streams and converting that to discharge through stage discharge relationships. In addition, we are continuously measuring the common field parameters of temperature, pH, and specific conductivity. Um, and we are also coupling that with the periodic collection of water samples for water quality, which are sent to analytical labs to look at metals and other constituents in the water. 
That's great. Now, uh, given that this is mine discharge, or some of it is mine discharge, uh, what kind of pH levels are you are you dealing with? Um, so, in the case of the Gold King area, um, this is near uh, what is known as Red Mountain Pass. Mm-hmm. Red Mountain um, is a pretty prominent mountain in the San Juans, and so because of the geologic makeup of the rock, we are dealing with um, a lot of uh, sulfur and iron pyrite. And we have pHs both naturally occurring in streams and in mines that are as low sub two. Um, So our pH range is anywhere from just under two to to neutral. Um, Snowmelt, we measure snowmelt that comes out at, you know, seven. So Um, most commonly we're in the two to three, three to four range, um, for a lot of our, um, sites where we have high uh, mineralization and high metals. What's the importance of telemetry? I know we talked about that before. I know the idea of, 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 um, kind of the idea of, of getting real time data. What's the, what, what do you, what's the value of that? Do you see in a, in a, in a bigger picture? Yeah, I mean, I think the value is twofold. Um, you know, being someone who's on the ground and and conducting um, the actual physical construction and maintenance O and M of the instruments, the, the physical risk and hazard to employees is number one, right? Um, we we certainly want to reduce and not put um, field staff into any sort of dangerous or risky situations. And the telemetry allows us to keep an eye on sites that may not be safely accessible um, for periods of time. So that's one. Um, the second is that we, um, our clients often need to manage risk and also they need to communicate changes in the system to downstream users and stakeholders. So, for example, if there is a um, rainstorm and a flood event occurring in the headwaters of the Animus River, um, the real-time communication of that raise in water level um, communicated through um, communication networks enables a uh, project manager or responsible party to be notified relatively quickly and they can then set up um, emergency alert systems. So we work closely with offices of emergency management from downstream communities and they can be alerted that there is a change in discharge um, either from a mine or from a stream, you know, within hours, which is faster than that water is even going to get to them. Whereas without that, we wouldn't have that opportunity to relay that information. So those are, those are two reasons on the risk end. Mm-hmm. And then on the, the science or the data collection end, uh, obviously it's um, high resolution data streamlined to one location and immediately put into a digital cloud repository, um, which is, reduces the number of steps to get to your data um, stream uh, as opposed to having to manually download instruments in the field through, you know, a tablet or a laptop or a cell phone in the field and then get back and connect that to 
upload that to a cloud, to an internet system. So that transfer is much smoother when it can happen, you know, remotely, uh, hands off. Dealing with, you know, some extreme environments like that, being at such high altitude with a snowpack, um, you know, you know, I think, you know, you're getting tens of feet of snow up there, you know, in that order of magnitude, um, but also dealing with the mine water as well. What are some of the, like the, like some of the monitoring challenges you've, you've encountered? Physical access is a challenge because of the snowpack and the steep gradients. Uh, the other thing, you know, to keep in mind is that we have no cell phone coverage at these sites. Um, which I think is that in itself is fairly rare. Um, I, my, my guess is it's a pretty small percentage of the country land area wise that doesn't have any cell signal. Um, we also have very limited line of sight. So radio communications are also very challenging, uh, because of the steep topography, um, in the mountain drainages, um, you know, you know, stream drainage and a mountaintop. So communications are, uh, are very challenging. Um, it requires more detailed health and safety plans, you know, to send people out and collect data. Um, so that's that's first and foremost. And then in terms of actually collecting samples, um, you know, we have, again, we are 80% and I say we, um, I'm, I'm basically speaking uh, to, to, the, to the area um, that we're focusing on here uh, and all the, the other folks that work on it. It's not just myself, but the agencies, my clients, et cetera. And, you know, we receive about 80% of the annual precipitation is snow. Uh, we get anywhere from 15 to 30 feet of snow uh, in the winter, nine months a year. The stream channels are frozen over. Uh, so, you know, we're below freezing at night from Labor Day to Memorial Day. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the opposite. Right. You know, we essentially, uh, yeah, for, for three quarters of the year, you need to assume that your temperature conditions are can be below freezing on any, any day of the year um, in that window. So that uh, creates challenges with icing over of stream channels, icing up of stilling wells, um, yeah, ice dams and snow cover can impact your actual physical, um, you know, measurements of things like water table, uh, water level. And then we uh, combine that with the low pH acidic water. Mm -hmm. And what we deal with is obviously tremendous corrosion. So we none of our instruments or equipment or anything associated with that can have any you know, it has to be pretty resistant to corrosion um, at that level. Uh, additionally, the low pH waters tend to carry high amounts of both dissolved and total metals. Um, the lower the pH, the more soluble uh, metals. And just for folks, if they're not familiar, uh, you know, a range of metals, we're talking aluminum, lead, mm. zinc, cadmium, and iron. Iron is the big one from a physical standpoint. Um, some of the other ones, lead and cadmium, are more, um, you know, uh, toxic, I guess, to aquatic mm -hmm. and human health. But the iron is the one that is in such large volumes it actually causes problems with sludging and buildup. Uh, we get precipitates and buildup on sensors and on instrumentation um, continuously. So some of our... Um, some of our pressure transducers have to be cleaned every 30 days. Um, even with remote communication networks, 
there's no way to avoid drift because if we have a flume, the flume um, dimensions will be compromised in as soon as a month, uh, one month's time due to build up of precipitates like iron sludge. So that will build up on the instruments as well. Um, so we are constantly making sure that the instrument um, measurement surfaces, uh, however you want to term it, um, have, uh, are cleaned and we've, we've used a variety of instruments. Um, you know, I think a good example is, um, uh, in situ has, uh, an Aquatrol 600 that we've used. And this is a device that is really handy because we can get conductivity pH and, um, water level or pressure, uh, all in one instrument. Uh, and in, in this case, you know, we, we've, we worked a little bit with you. Um, the, the instrument itself actually contains a, um, uh, and you can speak to it better, <laughs> a rotating brush that is intended to brush off the surfaces of the probes that are measuring the individual components, um, for the pH and conductivity. So, we um, have done a number of things to maintain those and keep those working and those surfaces clean. Anti-fouling is a is a critical part to that, and yeah, I know we've actually you know we've worked with you quite a bit on those those really kind of extreme fouling conditions that you have there. That uh, that iron precipitate is some nasty stuff, and it really does build up pretty quick. But it's interesting to hear you talk about the flumes as well, though, because the with the dimensions that they, that change as the buildup happens. Uh, which then changes right. how, you gotta, how you change that, how you, how you ultimately uh, calculate your flow. Yeah. You know, a lot of our flow measurements are based on, you know, mathematical conversions of water depth through constriction points. So weirs, yep. you know, we have V-notch weirs, we have trapezoidal weirs, we have flumes. And so no matter what the instrument is, we are still reliant on the function of the constriction device to give us an accurate depth or height of water. Right. So, you know, even if we use a contact sensor in a stilling well versus a non-contact sensor, you know, sonically, mm-hmm. um, we still have the same secondary problem with the physical equipment. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a combined scenario, um, that we have to address. And I think this is a good point to also bring up that we um, often don't have any sort of electricity. We are reliant on building out solar um, arrays to keep instruments um, or data loggers powered up or remote communication devices powered up. um, Particularly, I guess most of the instruments, the individual instruments are self-powered, um, so they're running on their own. But when they when we connect them to any sort of networking, there's a power issue as well um, that we that we have to you know figure out uh, in addition to these other challenges with the instruments and the and the setup. So by yeah by having self-powered instruments, that gives you a, a nice advantage um, given the given the a the environment uh, you know just just the remoteness of the environment. But I also imagine snowpack too. Uh, cause imagine stuff gets buried. Quite yeah. Um, and that, and we've made some advancements recently or you, have your <laughs> products as well. Um, you know, I, I want to speak highly towards the ability to advance from pressure transducers that have to be pulled out of their stilling well 
placed onto a base station, which is plugged into a USB cord, which goes to a laptop computer. Mm-hmm. That's tough when it's below zero and you're you have 10 feet of snow on the side of the riverbank. So now we have instruments that are vented with cables that are long enough to stay above and out of the snowpack and you know, connect to the Bluetooth communication devices. And that way we don't have to get to removing all the snow. We don't have to remove the instruments from their resting place, from their stilling well, uh, each time we go out to visit them. So that's, that's been a, uh, another ad- advantage to, you know, migrating towards uh, Bluetooth communications and especially being able to use mobile devices. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out laptops are not great in harsh environments either. So using the iPhone and, um, and the Bluetooth comms device is, is definitely uh, a vast improvement. And and this is in, you know, the last four or five years, three years, even that we've really started to um, use this instrumentation. So, uh, you know, I want to point out that there's, I feel like we're rapidly advancing. You know, I would say I used, pressure transducers that had to go to a base station for 10 years. And now I'm, you know, in in the last couple of years, we've really made big strides towards the, the, using the technology to our advantage. Kind of taking a little bit of a shift here when, when, um, and also carrying on from telemetry, when the data comes in, where's the data going? So for example, um, the Gold King mine example, um, we, our client, the EPA has, um, an ongoing contract to use your um, data center and all, all of the uploaded data goes to that data center. So it allows managers to either log on to the website and with, with password and look at the live data and then they can um, download or pull, you know, two days, five days, seven days of data um, back from that. And then, um, in the case of uh, some of this data, we have um, we are working with you know, federal data managers at the national level that have uh, very complex <laughs> algorithm systems to go to clouds and pull data into central repositories mm-hmm. that match with other data sets. Um, so it's kind of multifold. One of the challenges with the water resource work that I do is that I often need, you know, the reality is I often need instruments that are from more than one company. Right. Um, Not everybody makes everything. I mean, that's just right. So, Mm -hmm. but we tend to have clustered network clustered sites with multiple types of instrumentation. And of course, not everybody wants to play nice, right? You know, so how do you get through that? And if I've got one opportunity to build a solar array and some battery storage and things like that, you know, how can I tie all of my stuff in and how can I communicate it out? And I think, you know, what we're getting at is that the satellite option is by far the best option for us right? uh, in this, because we have no line of sight and we have no cell signals. Right. So right. both the radio and cellular options are not that viable. And so 
you know, continued improvement on the satellite mm-hmm. uh, comms is definitely the best way forward in in, in the majority of my work sites. Mm-hmm. But then, and but then also, he said then the connectivity uh, to multiple instrument types, different types of outputs, uh, whether that be Pulse, SDI twelve, four to twenty, any of those types of of outputs would be really valuable. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And just um, yeah, be able to communicate because um, you know we occasionally we'll have very, very specialized, um, engineering instruments Mm -hmm. that might be measuring, um, stress or tension on a steel wall, Mm -hmm. you know, and behind that wall is water (laughs) that I'm measuring water depth with your, with in situ pressure transducers. But the client wants, you know, the, the vibrational stress data Mm -hmm. and water data at the same place at the same time. What I tell people that haven't worked in this environment, you know, I explain it as a lot of times we're going to manufacturers and instrument um, and equipment companies and buying stuff and their primary clients might be a wastewater treatment plant or a water treatment facility Mm -hmm. in a city. And you've got an ethernet outlet and as much line power as you need right next to you. So, you know, I'll get a box and, you know, and you'll get an instruction manual and it'll say, plug it in. (laughs) Well, that doesn't work. Exactly. How do do we go from current to AC, you know, to stored, you know, battery power, et cetera. And, you know, it'll say, Oh, you know, keep your, data logger, you know, between 50 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And you're like, that's like 10 hours a year. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a beautiful day, right? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, um, so, so those are, those are, that's kind of, you know, an example of working. And that's why I really enjoy working with in situ, you know, folks have come out to the site. You, your, your product developers understand what we're working with. They, they, they're willing to help, um, us create a unique um, network system that works or, um, you know, some custom design for uh, the way to hold your instruments in place or, you know, keep them from freezing, et cetera. So um, that's, that's a kind of the unique part of, uh, of my business and, and why I am driven towards doing it because it's, it's problem solving every day on the ground, even when you have, high-end, high-precision instrumentation. Taking a little bit of a detour here, I want to talk a little bit about your background. Particularly, tell me a little bit about, so you kind of cut your teeth, it sounds like, a little bit at uh, University of Colorado. Tell me about some of your research there. Um, yeah, so um, I've been I've been a Colorado resident for, for over 20 years now, and um, originally from the Northeast. I'm from Maine, New England. And, wait, wait, uh, I got to stop you there. I did not know that. Where in Maine are you from? Uh, I'm from Orno, Maine, where the you University are? of Maine. Yeah, well, I grew yeah. up in in uh, Cumberland, just north of Portland. Ah. I didn't. I didn't. So I've known oh. you for all this time. I did not know you were from Maine. So <laughs> that's good. Yeah. yeah. So so my right my Mainer response is oh well that's I'm from real Maine. Real. That, that is true. <laughs> that, I will. I, I will agree with that. You are definitely from real Maine. I am from Massachusetts, so that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, they say the southern two counties, York and Cumberland County. It's kind of just North Boston. It's North Boston. You know, it is. That's all it is. It's an extension of Massachusetts. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
Yeah. Uh, so my background. Yeah. So, so yeah. I grew up in, in the north woods of Maine. Um, yeah. So cold weather uh, and snow guy and um, made my way to Colorado for undergraduate school and studied at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. And uh, after, after I left uh, Colorado Springs, I said, man, I, I'd like to, you know, move to the mountains and, and be in a, be able to ski a little. So I, I, I was fortunate to spend a few years in Telluride working in at the ski industry. And um, in that time, I, I became really interested in water resources. Um, I was able to work for the local town government doing uh, wetland restoration work and building a trail along the river. And I decided that I wanted to go back to graduate school and study. Uh, and I picked uh, hydrology and water resources mostly because uh, I figured it was a good way to have a career where I could maybe work outside and work in the mountains. And also because I recognized, you know, 15 years ago now that water resources were only going to become more and more important in the Western, especially in the Western U.S., but globally as well. Um, With, you know, changing climates and increasing populations, uh, the, the need and desire for for high quality water is, is always going to continue to grow in my mind. So that's what took me back to the university of Colorado at Boulder. And, uh, I was a research assistant there at the Institute of Arctic and Alpine research known as INSTAR. And I worked under a professor named Mark Williams and Mark Williams is a snow hydrologist who, um, had, uh, has worked many decades in Colorado, and he got me involved in working um, at the Niwot Ridge Mountain Research Station. So the University of Colorado has a research station near the Continental Divide above Nederland, Colorado. And this is a high alpine um, watershed, and it's the headwaters of Boulder Creek. Uh, Boulder Creek is water for the city of Boulder. And there's been long-term 50 years of, of climate and hydrology research uh, at this station. So uh, that's where I, I really kind of cut my teeth and started studying and learning about hydrology and, and water resources in the mountains. And that's where I met Nate Rock. And Nate Rock is a colleague of mine. He's also lives in Silverton, Colorado. He currently is the field manager for Mountain Studies Institute. Um, and Nate and I have worked together for years. And so he was my field manager when I was doing research at CU. And we started working on monitoring high alpine rivers and streams and snowpack and uh, understanding the interactions between snowmelt and groundwater and where does river flow come from um, was kind of where I started my research in Boulder. And uh, continued that after my master's degree, I decided to stay on and do a PhD. And when I was looking for funding for the PhD, um, my advisor had a colleague at the US EPA in Denver. His name was Mike Weierman, and he was the national groundwater expert for the EPA for the country. And he was involved with abandoned mine cleanup and Superfund sites. And so um, I kind of detoured a little bit from a lot of the theoretical and modeling development of climate change and water resources into a little bit more of a practical application of mountain hydrology. And that was addressing these, these legacy and abandoned mine issues. So I started doing research um, on that. And uh, at the time it was kind of novel to use some of the 
hydrology and geochemistry and uh, practices and methodologies and apply them to this scenario of legacy mine sites that are creating pollution? And can we use the information that we've used to study mountain hydrology and methods and, and try to understand these old mines? Um, so that kind of that kind of brought it into that. And uh, um, so my PhD was in mountain hydrology, both um, in natural um, unaltered environments where we're studying changes in climate and then in human altered environments where in this case we have abandoned mines um, creating a, a legacy issue that we're trying to address from a water quality and water quantity standpoint. Rory, I have a question for you. Just, you know, it sounds like a lot of your work is around consequences of activity that was done decades and decades ago. Uh, do these uh, issues of legacy and abandoned mine um, fall out, go away at some point? Or is this something that just goes on into perpetuity? And is it, uh, you know, job security forever? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um perpetuity is a term that is definitely used quite frequently. So um, the, the, the ultimate source of the contamination in the mines is minerals that exist in the rock. The, the mountain that the water's moving through will be here longer than human beings. So that's a geologic timescale. There's, weathering of rock that occurs that causes metals to be released. So on the surface of a mountain that's been exposed for 20 million years since volcanism, there's been a pretty significant amount of weathering and there's less metals getting washed off the surface of the rock. But underground, these mine tunnels are very young in geologic time, they've been around 100 years. And so the rock that's exposed in a mine tunnel has millions of years to go in terms of its um, weathering and releasing, continuing to release um, metals uh, that, you know, would have, all, have always been in the rock, but the metals like, you know, lead has been locked underground for since the mountains formed and it didn't really wasn't coming out. didn't really bother the streams because it was half a mile underground, the deposit. But then all of a sudden you have a mine tunnel that goes straight to the deposit. It brings oxygen into the mine. It allows water to also drain in and out of the mine. When you combine oxygen with water and the minerals, you're going to create acidity and you're going to have pollution and as long as those three things are in contact with each other, then the term perpetuity could be used. And in a traditional standpoint of cleanup, what has been common for the last two to three decades is to build a treatment plant to take the water coming out of the mine and treat it to raise the pH, pull the metals out before it goes into the river. which does a really good job of treating the water, but it will never end. The water will always flow downhill through the mine because of gravity and go toward the river. So you're going to have to treat that water in perpetuity. 
um, is where you normally see that word used. And there's a huge environmental and economic footprint to that, whether it's, you know, production of raw materials, electricity costs, um, mobilization, O&M costs are pretty high. So that's where we're at a crux or turning point to see if there's other ways and solutions besides these active treatment plants that cost millions of dollars to run year after year after year. So, you know, with the idea of, of kind of mining and, and legacy sites and things like that, um, what's going to be the, the focus uh, for, the, for the next year and the, and the years to come for you and do you think for kind of the, the area? I think, uh, as I said, I think we've established that there's plenty of uh, legacy mining and uh, to clean up and, and water monitoring. And, and I think that the, the future, as I mentioned, is water quality and water quantity are going to become more and more and more important to monitor and understand at finer um, spatial scales and greater temporal scales. So we, we, need to, we need to be able to monitor water more closely and um, at higher intervals um, in the future because the demand for that information is going to increase. Um, so I see that continuing. Um, the mine cleanup, I expect to continue, um, you know, for decades to come. It's, it's, not, it's not an easy solution. Um, and I think that improving the, you know, networking in multiple device communication networks uh, is going to be very beneficial because I see that clients are interested in uh, using cap- capital cost to increase capital costs to reduce long-term O&M labor costs. And so streamlining things, um, you know, with the capital investment, I think will be um, important and what clients will desire. Um, and then connecting it with modern technology, everybody's on their phone. And so everybody wants mobile apps and everybody wants, you know, quick links um, to stuff. Um, so I, th- I think those those two areas are going to continue to grow. And professionally for myself, um, I'd like to expand beyond just San Juan Mountains in the southwestern part of the state. Um, I'd like to work across Colorado, across the Rockies. And, you know, I'm looking into the future as well to expanding internationally. Um, you know, when we talk mining, um, the reality is the active mining is much more prevalent in other countries, um, in South America, Africa and even in Asia. Um, and so expanding my knowledge and experience and, and, you know, and taking the tools and taking the instrumentation as well and bringing that to, to audiences and clients in other areas around the world, I think is something that's, that's a real realistic um, possibility. What, What do you enjoy most about the work you do? Oh, that's, I love that question. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> what I most about the work I do is the fact that I get to, I get to participate in projects that are, have real world application and are, have ultimate end goals to help people. You know, we're the, the ultimate end goal in a lot of my work is to improve water quality and water quantity. And it's a resource that I feel is, uh, should be available um, to everyone. 
And so seeing, uh, you know, the reward of some of the work is, is, is seeing cleaner water that people can use and also the environment, um, increasing biodiversity and fish habitat and natural ecosystems, you know, that that's, that's a big part of my reward. And selfishly, I also enjoy being able to work outside. I went to school for a really long time and, uh, you know, wanted to continue to move up uh, in the world, but knew that I would never be happy with a full-time desk job. You know, in the case of my work too, it's, it's problem solving. It's, it's unique, innovative ideas and solutions to, to getting stuff to work and collecting information. And then, you know, ultimately for myself, the end goal is also to be able to communicate back to society and to, to people like what, what am I doing and why am I doing it? Um, I've always had a strong belief that science is only as good as the way it's communicated because to go out and collect high precision data and information is not that useful unless it can be digested and disseminated to people that need it to make decisions to help, uh, whether it's the environment or human health or whatever it is. And my clients pay for my snowmobile. So there you um, go. They have- have a use fee. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. N- n- nothing wow. wrong with that. Um, well, and I think uh, the niche for Alpine water resources yeah. is that I do high level hydrology research in the mountains and we provide design and implementation of stuff in places that most consulting firms wouldn't be able to access at a year round basis. You know, my myself and the people like Nate Rock that I work with, uh, we have backcountry training and avalanche training in addition to instrumentation operation training and, and and the other scientific qualifications. Right. So it's kind of a unique mix and it takes the right person. Um, not everybody wants to stand with freezing cold hands and work on, you know, wiring data loggers or downloading instruments. But um, that's a niche that I found and I enjoy it. Oh, that's great. Well, Roy, I want to say thank you so much. This has been really fun, really educational, and I just really appreciate you taking the time um, for speaking with us. Yeah, your passion is evident, and it really has been great talking with you and learning more about the important work you're doing. So yeah, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Well, thank you for inviting me on to your new venture here with the podcast. And I, I hope it works out and I look forward to um, hearing it. And I also look forward to hearing other podcasts uh, with other folks that you're working with. That'd be really interesting. And thank you all for listening. This is Aquapod brought to you by In-Situ. Please subscribe to Aquapod wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out on insitu.com. That's in-situ.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was produced by Helen Taylor, Adam Hobson, and Lauren Ryan with a big assist from Josiah Homeland and Versa Studios. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field. And until then, take care out there.